Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 85. Today's episode is all about managing expectations for yourself, life, and relationships. A great way to kind of navigate expectations in a relationship is collect evidence for everything that is working. Too many people in relationships, especially the more long-term they are, they start collecting evidence for all the things that bug them. Oh my God, he left his clothes on the floor again. Oh my gosh, does she ever clean the dishes? Oh, that laugh. Oh, the snore. Whatever it could be. When we get out of that cycle of collecting evidence for the negative, then we start to be pleasantly surprised. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hi, friends and wild people. I'm going to start this episode a little bit different, you know, just to make sure that you release any expectations you had around how this episode would start. (laughs) I want to give a shout out to One Love who left a review for me on Apple Podcasts. That made me really happy. And it says, I've been addicted to this show since I started listening to it a few weeks ago. Thank you for the great interviews and life-changing advice. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to leave me a review. They really, really help. So if you're out there and you want to find a way to give back to Mind Love, take a second and leave a review. They make me super happy and I love them and they actually really help the growth of the show. And I also want to give a shout out to Aaron Kelly and Amelia Ryan who let me know on Instagram that apparently they have a group thread going called Mind Lovers because they're huge fans of the show. Honestly, that comment had me smiling for days and totally unexpected. Maybe that's why it was so good. And if you're out there and you're like, how cool, I wish I could have a shout out, connect with me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa or leave a stellar review on iTunes. Okay, okay, now for the stuff that you're really here for. Today we're talking about expectations. And real quick, fun fact, briefly in college I worked for a dating company called Great Expectations. It's the dating company that Saturday Night Live actually had a spoof about called Lowered Expectations. And due to practices that eventually led me to quit, I hope that that company is finally out of business, or they've at least changed their name to False Expectations. Anyways, expectations, the root of arguably all disappointment. Seriously, all of it. Because how can you be disappointed if you didn't expect anything in the first place? And if you're at home thinking, oh crap, I have expectations for everything, you're not alone. We all have a past. And what happens when you have a past, as all living things hopefully do, is that in order to survive and to learn and to not be wandering around aimlessly with no sense of anything ahead, we form a sense of pattern recognition, which often creates expectations. And here's another pattern for you. There's a lot going on in our human brains that evolved during our cave woman survival years that we just haven't yet calibrated for modern day life. And expectations might be one of those. 
There's a saying that you may have heard. I think it came from 12-step programs, but it says, expectations are premeditated resentments. (laughs) Mic drop, right? Premeditated resentments. That is a powerful statement. So where does this come from? We might be projecting our past into our futures, or maybe we just have this imaginary standard that we're holding something or someone to. But just because we expect something doesn't mean that it's going to happen. And this becomes a real problem when we pin our hopes on happiness on having these expectations fulfilled. It's basically giving the reins of our happiness to our circumstances or to other people. So if you're anything like me, there's all these questions whirling around in your head that sound something like this. What about planning? How do you not have expectations when you're planning for the future? Or the power of intention. Aren't we supposed to be envisioning our futures daily to make a greater chance that it's going to happen? Or maybe these expectations come from this fear that has lived inside us for our entire lives. How are we supposed to shake that? Well, we're getting into all of that today. And we're talking to Christine Hassler, a life coach who specializes in radical self-reflection. And I'm really excited about this because I have been a fan of hers for about a year. I heard her on Aubrey Marcus's podcast, and I just think she has so much light and love and wisdom to give. Three things we will learn are the difference between intention and expectation, practical steps to releasing expectation in relationships, and how to stop judging your own damn emotions. So before we get into the interview, I want to remind you guys to sign up for the daily email list called The Morning Mind Love. We have close to 5,000 subscribers now, and I'm constantly getting replies back from you guys saying how much you love them or how synchronistic the messages tend to be. I actually read my own emails myself, and it feels like this little oracle of exactly what I needed to hear that day. And you're not always going to get the same messages as somebody else on the same day. So think of it like your little fortune cookie of exactly what the universe wants you to hear. Plus, you'll get some really great free gifts when you do, like a 30-minute affirmation meditation, which I have received a lot of positive responses about, and some printable worksheets to help you get your shit together. So sign up for the Morning Mind Love to be reminded of your own beauty, worth, and power each morning, and a little reminder of how magical the universe really is. To sign up, just go to mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Christine Hassler to the show. Thank you for having me. First of all, I have to say that I'm super excited about this interview. I have been a fan of yours for a long time. So let's start out by sharing a little bit about you and what inspired you to become a coach. I feel like it was divine intervention (laughs) rather than waking up one day and going, oh, I want to be a coach. So it's a long story. I'll try to shorten it. I moved out to Hollywood after graduating from college to pursue a career in the entertainment industry. But I was really motivated by massive insecurity more than I was truly inspired to work in the entertainment industry. The entertainment industry, in my view, was sort of like the adult version of the popular crowd. And I thought if I could prove myself there, then I'd finally get over a lot of like the bullying and not being liked and not feeling like I ever fit in. So I was a classic overachiever motivated by insecurity. And I think a lot of overachievers are motivated (laughs) by insecurity. And I call it a compensatory strategy. You know, we make up for where we feel less than by excelling in a certain area. 
And the great thing about having the compensatory strategy of being an overachiever is it made me very successful on the ex- in the external world. But internally, I was a mess. And I had been a mess for a while. I was put on antidepressants when I was 11 years old. I was suffering from headaches, migraines every day, had a lot of digestive stuff, kind of autoimmune type symptoms, and a lot of anxiety. And so I was really good, Melissa, at wearing a mask. I was really good at pretending that I was okay. And that was one of my survival skills because especially with being ostracized at school and having girls pass around a note in one of the classes that was handed to everyone but me about how I'm an awful person and don't be my friend, I had to put on my game face in order to survive. And so pretending I was fine, and I love the definition of fine feelings inside not expressed, (laughs) <laughs> that I, I had that down to, you know, I did it professionally. I really looked like I had my act together. And so I reached a certain point in my career in Hollywood where it was like the pinnacle of my career. I had been promoted at a very, very young age and I was an agent and working at one of the biggest agencies. And I had a boyfriend who was a Hollywood producer. So I was Oscars and Golden Globes and hanging out with celebrities. And no matter what box I checked off, the job, the body, the boyfriend, the money, the prestige, it still wasn't fulfilling the void inside of me. And it's like the bar kept getting higher. I couldn't ever be satiated in terms of feeling at peace. And I really hated my job. And one day I decided, because similar to your story, I got so miserable that I just couldn't take it anymore. And I decided to resign. And that led me into a massive free fall time in my life, which I called my quarter life crisis, where I left my job, which was my whole identity. I went into debt. My fiance broke up with me six months before our wedding. I was estranged from my family because I got in a really bad fight with my mom. And I was dealing with tons of health problems on top of everything else. And that was really my pivot point for me. That was a rock bottom when everything that I clung to for safety, security, and identity felt like it had been stripped away. And I was really feeling sorry for myself, like lots of pity parties. And I finally had one moment on my bathroom floor, which tends to be the place we go as women when we feel really desperate and sorry for ourselves. (laughs) Because where else would we go? It's just so gross. But I had this thought of, well, I created all of this on some level. So maybe I can uncreate it. You know, maybe I can create something different. And that's when I fell in love with personal development. I had been seeing a coach for about two years prior named Mona. But I wasn't, you know, she was saying the things I didn't really want to hear. Like, you know, you need to stop drinking. It's not that I was drinking that much, but she really wanted to support me in getting off antidepressants and not numbing myself anymore. She's like, you can get off these medicines. You're not happy. You need boundaries with your family. Like she was telling me this stuff that was true, but that I was just like, no, 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 no. You know, when you're a little kid and you close your eyes and plug your ears and you're like, you just don't want to hear it or see it. And When I had that massive rock bottom quarter life crisis moment, I finally went to her and I'm like, all right, I'm serious now. Like I will actually listen to you. And I fell in love with personal development in a way that just changed my life. And that's how I decided to write my first book is that I was looking for books for women in their 20s about everything that they were going through. And there was a book called The Quarter Life Crisis and it's a good book. And there were other books out there, but it was mostly about how to get the outside things. Like, what job do you want? What relationship do you want? And I'm like, I did all that. What about the inside? How do you deal with 
what it means to be a woman in today's age, like your relationship with your mother, your insecurity, your relationship with your body, your relationship with money, like spirituality, like where's all that? And all the personal transformation books that I was reading, they felt like they were written for people that were much older than me. And so I wrote 20 something, 20 everything. And that is now I'm finally getting the answer to your question. (laughs) That is what really started my coaching career because I was talking to women for the book getting their stories and just collecting research. And every time I get off the phone, people would say, well, not every time, but a lot of times people would say, can I set up a session with you? And at first it caught me by surprise because I thought, no, this is just an interview, but people just assumed I was a coach or a counselor. And when I said I wasn't, people would say you should be. And I heard that time and time again. And I was working to pay the bills as a personal trainer at the time. And I noticed most of my clients just wanted to talk to me. They really didn't want to work out. And people in their 50s and 60s would come to me for advice. And so I started to see, huh, maybe maybe I do kind of have a knack for this. And I went to Mona, my coach, and she's like, yeah, that's your gift. And so that's really how it all began. And then from there, it's like more books and speaking and retreats and podcasts and like all the things. Yeah, that's how it all happened. That's such a testament to the universe just not even just guiding you, but straight up telling you what you should go into, which is just funny because, first of all, I relate to your story on so many levels, including just struggle after struggle. But even more so, people have been telling me since I was a teenager that I'm like their therapist or their life coach. But at the same time, for as long as I could remember, I felt totally lost. Like I had no idea what I should do with my life. But really looking back, I just wasn't listening. People around me were telling me how I was helping them, were telling me the value I was giving, and I still didn't put those two pieces together. And so for you, when you really started getting into personal development, what do you think was the biggest thing that was missing before you really stepped into your own power? Well, self-love was a big one, but I think the biggest thing is I just really didn't have the tools. Mm -hmm. The tools I had were, well, you have a headache, take an aspirin. You're not happy with your job, get another one or try to do better. You're not happy with your body, change it. So they were all outside in kind of things. And I didn't really understand that physical symptoms often, most likely, are an alarm system to an emotional issue that we haven't looked at. I didn't understand that my body was one of the ways my unconscious mind talked to me. I didn't understand that being so hard on myself all the time was detrimental. You know, my inner critic, I thought I needed because the harder I was on myself, the more driven I could be. And so I really thought that that was the way to advance myself. I just thought, you know, you're hard on yourself. You're always looking for what's wrong. My my brain was very, very wired for negativity and very, very fear-based. And I didn't know how much my thoughts created my reality. And I didn't understand how to make friends with people because that wasn't really anything I learned because of what I went through as a young adolescent. So it was just so much unconscious incompetence, you know, not knowing what I didn't know. And that's why personal development and coaching was such a game changer for me is because I was a straight A student. I considered myself very intelligent, but I was missing the EQ and just intelligence about how the universe works. And so that was a huge shift for me. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? 
And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. <laughs> and it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. I've thought a lot about how I wish I would have had these same tools that you talked about when I was growing up, where why don't they teach so many of these things in schools? You know what I mean? But one thing that I've, I'm kind of coming to realize is I wonder how much of it is just the way we're evolving as a species. We can say like, oh yeah, 20 years ago, I can't believe they weren't teaching us these self-development things, but how many people really knew that how many people still don't know those things today and it's our job as light workers or people that are doing the seeking to share that this is where that information is going to come from and maybe that can start to speak to you know the school systems after the few decades it takes to actually get the curriculum approved you know yes well this is part of my long term mission is getting into the educational system because i just think it's so, so, so important that little kids learn how to process their emotions. Well, then they learn how to understand that their mind can create their reality. I took a year of Texas history. Like, how has that helped me in life? Zero. And I think the school system is so based on memorization than actual true learning and experiential learning. You know, I have two master's degree, one in spiritual psychology. And what I love most about my two-year program at a place called the University of Santa Monica, unfortunately, they don't offer master's degree any, anymore, but they still have online programs and certification programs. The thing that I love the most about it, it was all experiential. 
We learn something about the phases of development and psychology. And then we'd have an experiential session where we'd be the actual client and the counselor and the neutral observer and work whatever we just learned. And I think that that's also sometimes what's missing in the personal growth industry and why, you know, I'm so committed to teaching people in a different way is that just a lot of information is thrown at people and we need more experiential work, which is why it's so important to go to retreats, involve yourself in processes. I mean, you did a lot with your yoga teacher training. We need the experiences and not just the information. I agree 100%. In fact, we were just talking about that on the episode we recorded for your podcast. But we were saying about how so often we have these ideas or maybe we're reading self-development books and we're getting the information, but it's not until you ground it into the real world by actually taking action on it that it starts to change the way you think or change your behavior patterns. And until you do take action, you just end up mulling it around in your head and overthinking these so-called best ways to be. But until you bring it into your own experience, it's just a theory. It's just an idea. And it's not going to be able to change your life. Exactly. And I still live a lot in my head. So much of my work in this lifetime has been getting in my body, really embodying and getting into my heart and my intuition and my belly and my womb, like really being embodied. And it's only been through those experiential processes that I've been able to get there. And it's just a roadblock I see a lot of people hit in personal development. They read the books and they listen to the podcasts, but they don't put themselves in an environment where they're going to get it in their bones. They're going to get it in their cells. And, and from my point of view, you have to go through experiential processes to do that. Why do you think that we overthink so much, whether it's a goal, whether it's what we want to be, whether it's what we think other people are thinking about us, we tend to allow thoughts to completely take over and sometimes even talking us out of the initial good idea in the first place. Why do you think we do that? I think it's a survival strategy. I think that, you know, Rick Hansen, who has done a lot of brain research and wrote The Buddha Brain or something like that. I hope I'm not butchering the title of his book. <laughs> anyway, he talks about how our brain is wired for negativity for survival. Like if you think about thousands and thousands and thousands and maybe millions of years ago that we were prey in a lot of ways. So we had to be mindful and always looking at our surroundings of when's the next attack going to be? Is there going to be a storm? We were fighting for our survival. And in today's day and age, most people, especially people listening to this podcast, you're not worried about where you're going to sleep tonight. You're not worried about, oh my gosh, I got to go out and kill my food and make sure I have things to eat. You know, most of us have our survival needs handled. And so that reptilian brain that's wired for negativity is consistently scanning, like looking, looking, looking. And so there's a part of us that doesn't feel safe to just drop into the present moment and drop into our body because there's that part of our brain that's like, what could go wrong? I, I need to make sure. And part of how we're evolving as a species is we're moving out of that place of fear really coming more into the present moment, shifting our vibration to more of love and gratitude and those kind of high vibe feelings so that we can sort of rewire some of that brain programming to not constantly be looking for what could go wrong. So I think that's why we're in the mind so much is because it feels safe. And what also feels safe about being in the mind is it gives us this illusion of control. That's the other big fear most people have is the lack of control, uncertainty. And so being in the mind, as long as I'm thinking about something, 
I think I have some kind of control over it. That's why so many of us suffer from anxiety. Anxiety is created when we're thinking about something in the future that hasn't yet happened or something that we don't have control over. So if I haven't heard from my fiance and he's supposed to be home at seven and now it's 8.30 and I can't get a hold of him, I'm going to go straight into my mind and start thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking and worrying because that's the only thing I have that gives me any sense of control. Same thing for if you're deciding to leave a relationship or a job or whatever. If you're in any uncertainty at all, you're going to overthink because that's how some part of your brain thinks you can have control over it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that negativity bias is always out there to get you. It's like your really negative friend that's always just complaining about everything. And it's funny because a friend and I were just talking about this because she was saying, if our brain is always going to go to the negative anyways, then aren't we just all screwed? Like, what's the point? And I get where she's coming from. I can actually get that way about most things in life every now and then (laughs) where I'm just like, why am I trying so hard? We're all going to die anyways. Mm -hmm. It's usually my cue to meditate, take a deep breath, drink some water, (laughs) sleep a little. So I totally get the tendency to just throw it all to the wind. But when I learned about the brain's negativity bias, I had a different take. For me, I felt that somehow the idea that my brain was always going to go to the negative was liberating because suddenly it wasn't about me. It wasn't like my brain is broken or that I am a negative person or that any of this negative self-talk in my head is true at all. This is just how brains work. This is my brain's natural tendency. And the work here to be done is working through that or is trying to flip it in some way. And deciding whether or not you do something about that might be the difference between leading a mediocre or complacent or unhappy life versus leading a life of intention and happiness and achievement and success. So then I take that knowledge and realize, okay, there are tools to help me through this. There are tools to reverse my brain's tendencies or to build new positive thought habits. And let me see what the world's most successful people or what the world's happiest people have laid out as a path to help get me there. Absolutely. I love the saying, I don't know who I can credit it to, but I can't always control my first thought, but I do have choice about the next thought. And that's been one of my biggest brain training things is to know that a lot of thoughts just kind of come in because they're habitual, they're programmed. And I can go stop, not in a harsh way, but in a gentle way, stop. This is not the direction I want to go. I'm going to shift into thinking about something else. And maybe it might just be like looking outside my window and being like, oh, I can count five succulents right now. It doesn't have to be, you don't, a lot of people think they have to shift from a negative thought to a positive thought, which can be hard sometimes, especially if you're going through a hard time. But you can just shift into a neutral thought, like I'm wearing gray pants or whatever it may be, or look at that woman carrying her baby, just noticing what's around you. And we have to remember that our brains are very malleable and they have all these neural nets, which are just pathways that have been created by repetitive thoughts. So if we want to change the direction of our thoughts, we've got to get off those grooves. We've got to get off those familiar pathways. And the only way we can do that is if we go stop and then shift off of it, because usually negative thought, there's a downward spiral of it, right? So that, like you were saying, there's a train. If I say, oh, I didn't do that right, there's a train of thoughts that follow that about my enoughness and my lovability and my likability and all those kinds of things. So if we can interrupt the thought pattern early before it downward spirals too much, then we can start actually rewiring our brain. 
What I find interesting is we know our brain has this tendency to do its own downward spiral. Yet one of the biggest things that we struggle with are our expectations, which technically is assuming the best case scenario and then immediately being disappointed. So what's going on there? Are we just confused? Are we just destined to seek disappointment? How can we have such high expectations when our brain is simultaneously assuming the worst? <laughs> yeah, well, I think we can have both. I think we're going to have high expectations and I think that we can have kind of fear-based expectations. But often those high expectations still are coming from a place of negativity, right? Because if I have this expectation of myself that I need to be married by 30, let's just say, then that expectation goes hand in hand with there's something wrong with me if I don't get married by 30. So there's still the negativity woven in to that expectation. And so I think the reason we have high expectations of ourselves is because we think that some future result in some way or somehow is going to ease a current discomfort or a current feeling of not enoughness or a current feeling of lack of fulfillment. Living in when then is a way that the mind tries to take us out of the present moment and the way the mind tries to kind of soothe us when we're not feeling good about something. And I also think putting massive expectations on ourselves is another way the inner critic pops up. Because a lot of the expectations that people put on themselves are completely unrealistic, like completely unrealistic. But they do it anyway because the inner critic comes in and it's like, oh, yeah, like you can't just get any job. You have to get like the best job or whatever, whatever your massive expectation is. And so it comes from that place, again, of negativity, of self-criticism, of putting so much pressure on ourselves. Then what happens is we either achieve that expectation and we celebrate for like 0.5 seconds and then it's on to the next thing that we have to go achieve, or we don't achieve that expectation, or we achieve the expectation but don't feel the way we thought we would, and we're left with what I call an expectation hangover of feeling miserable, of feeling like a loser, feeling lack of motivation, of feeling scared, wanting numbing devices to deal with all the yucky feelings like overworking or overeating or overdrinking or overspending or whatever it may be. And we have to stop putting so many expectations on ourselves because the expectation is a precursor to disappointment. You know, if you want to be disappointed a lot in life, have a lot of expectations. So then how do we manage to set big, audacious goals without getting carried away with expectations for ourselves with them? I'm not a fan of big, audacious goals. I'm a fan of vision, like aligned visions, because it's all about our come from. If my big, audacious goal is to make $20 million, where is that coming from? What do I want to do with that money? If I want to make that kind of money because I want to reform the educational system and it's going to take me that to do it, that's more of a vision. So that's like, this is the goal that needs to attain so I can achieve this vision, right? Or I want to be able to support my entire family for years. Okay, great. But most of the way that people create goals, again, comes from thinking that this goal is going to make them feel a certain way. And a lot of times people think they're setting goals, but all they're really doing is putting expectations on themselves. So I like to pursue, if we want to call them goals or really my vision with high intention, low attachment. Because the other thing I've learned about goals is when I get super specific about what I want, I often minimize what the universe can actually provide for me. 
like whenever I write down a vision or a goal statement, I always write this or something better for the highest good. Because I might have a goal to, we'll just use a money example since I use that, make a certain amount of money, but that might not be for my highest good, like for whatever reason. And so I hold on to them with high intention and involvement, but low attachment and also look at my why. Like, why am I pursuing this? What values does this satiate in me? Is there any part of me that's pursuing this from a place of insecurity or comparison or keeping up or thinking it's going to solve some problem? The happier and more peaceful and more accepting of myself that I have gotten, the less goals I pursue and the more miracles actually come into my life. I love that, especially because you said that earlier in your life, a lot of your motivation stemmed from insecurity. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. 
receive a free element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I love that, especially because you said that earlier in your life, a lot of your motivation stemmed from insecurity. And I think that that's something that a lot of people can relate to, partially because most of the messages we get when we're younger are around some idea of perfection or of beauty or really just putting value on the wrong metrics. And so when I really look back on my entire adolescence, I didn't know how to find happiness. Because for me, finding happiness meant Mm -hmm. first fulfilling all of these outside pressures or what I thought were expectations or reaching perfection. And once I was there, then I would be happy. And so I think the same thing can happen with money. It actually reminds me of my hubby because for some reason in his early 20s, he set a goal to be a millionaire by the time he was 27. So when 27 came around and we weren't even close, There was a lot of disappointment followed by an expectation Mm. hangover. And when we look back now, we laugh. We were kind of naive. And so we backtracked and we went back and we're like, well, why do you want a million dollars? Like, what do you actually want to do in this world? What legacy do you want to leave? Or even just something as simple as what lights you up? What's your ideal life? Now base the goal on that. And if you can figure out the exact dollar amount it'll take to get that, then fine. But if it's just to be a millionaire, how is that going to really make you happy even once you get it? Exactly. And that's a really good question. I interviewed a gentleman named Ken Honda a couple months ago and from my podcast. And he said, you know, what you appreciate appreciates. And that's so true. Like if you're constantly looking for a future goal, then you're paying a lot of attention to what's missing rather than really appreciating what you have right now. And I know that so much in like the entrepreneurial community, the personal growth industry is all about hustle and pursuing your goals. And I just disagree with, well, not disagree. I'm not aligned with a lot of it. And as someone who was a massive goal pursuer for most of her life, who made the transition to having vision, having intention, but really like enjoying my life and realizing that no one on their deathbed says, oh, wow, I'm really glad I achieved this goal and that goal and that goal. They're more about how did I live my life? Who did I spend my time with? And someone may be thinking, oh, what about relationship goals? What about that getting married by 30 or having a baby by this age or whatever? This was so hard for me to wrap my head around, especially before I met my fiance and I was single for like a long time in my 30s. And people would say, well, you've really got to let go of it, really surrender it. Maybe it's not for your highest good to be with someone. Maybe that's not your path. And I would want to punch those people in the face. I'd be like, no, I want this. And I finally got to a place where, I held it as a vision and as an intention and I let myself long for it, but I didn't have any suffering or attachment to needing it to happen. I stopped making it a goal. I stopped working on all the apps and doing all the things and trying to make it happen. That's the thing. Like I think the most important things in life, the real heart-based things in life, we can't make happen. We can make a blog happen. We can make an online business happen to a certain degree. We can make some of those things happen. But when it comes to like relationships and the real heart-based things and even stepping fully into your calling in the most aligned way, 
there has got to be a co-creative process to that. You've got to dance with the universe on that one. And if you're so controlling and attached to your expectations and fixated on your goals and whiteboarding everything and having everything calendared and just really in quote unquote too much control of your life, then you're not dancing with the universe. You're a one man show. And yeah, you may achieve your goals, but are they your truest, truest heart's desires? I'm glad you brought up relationships because I know that we do place so many expectations on ourselves and we tend to beat ourselves up. But I think another part of our huge expectations come from when we are in a relationship or expectations of the people around us. And I'll be real, I definitely struggle with this because I think part of it is just pattern recognition. You spend your life with somebody or you spend every day or even once a week with someone and you start to think you know what they're going to do or you expect them to know what you like and don't like. And so when they somehow break that pattern, it can be jarring or disappointing or whatever it might be. So how do you recommend that we start to manage our expectations with other people and just allow things to flow and allow things to change a little bit more freely? Well, I think it comes back to self-love and our relationship with ourselves, which I know you're so amazing at teaching about. I notice in my own relationship that I have way more expectations of him when I have expectations of myself. And I have way more annoyances with him when I am not in a happy place inside myself. So when I'm really in a place of accepting where I am, being aligned with my visions, being excited about my life, being grateful for where I am, not having expectations of him or life or anyone else or even myself to come in and make me feel better when I'm taking full responsibility for my life, then he's just free to show up as his best self. And when I am not expecting anything from him, I'm consistently pleasantly surprised (laughs) by how he does show up. And this is another thing is is a great way to kind of navigate expectations in a relationship is collect evidence for everything that is working. Like really collect evidence for everything that is working. I think too many people in relationships, especially the more long-term they are, they start collecting evidence for all the things that bug them. Oh my God, he left his clothes on the floor again. Oh my gosh, does she ever clean the dishes? Oh, that laugh. Oh, the snore. Whatever it could be. Or they're not doing enough personal growth work. Actually, just recently did a podcast episode on that with Stephanos about how you get your man into personal growth work because that's one of the most common <laughs> questions I hear from women. They have massive expectation hangover that they're doing all this work and their man isn't. When we, when we get out of that cycle of collecting evidence for the negative, then we start to be pleasantly surprised. And then the final thing I'll say about that is please don't expect people you're in relationship with, be it romantic or friendship, your family, whatever, to be psychic and to read your mind. If you want your needs met, communicate your needs. You're setting yourself up for an expectation hangover if you expect people to read your mind. And I see people do this in relationship all the time. It's like, well, if my friend loved me, she'd remember my birthday is June 29th. So I'm just going to see if she shows up and how she shows up. And what I've done with all my friends, we have a birthday agreement. I ask all my good friends, so what do you like on your birthday? Do you like gifts? Do you like phone calls? Do you like being taken out for dinner? Like, what do you like? And different people like different things. And I've always communicated what I like on my birthday. And I've taken responsibility for that so that I don't end up with an expectation hangover. So we're back to that word responsibility again, like really taking responsibility for what you need and communicating that and setting people up for success rather than setting them up to fail. 
Yeah. And again, even a relationship with somebody else still goes hand in hand with your relationship with yourself. Because I think what trips a lot of people up is they're in this relationship with a man or a woman and they don't understand why they feel unfulfilled or why they keep feeling disappointed. But you have to step back sometimes and ask yourself, what makes me feel unfulfilled? What makes me feel fulfilled? Like, What helps me to feel like I have a thriving relationship. You need to know those things and set your boundaries, set your desires, understand what those are, and then communicate them. (laughs) It's hard to communicate something that you haven't come to terms with yourself. Exactly. And that's where we get into trouble in relationship is since we don't know how to meet our own needs and we don't really know how to self-love ourselves, we project that onto our partner and we want them to ease our pain. We want them to love us so much that it makes up for how we don't love ourselves. And that's completely unfair to do to another person. And it's not healthy. That's more codependence than it is anything else. So the more love we have for ourselves and the better relationship we have for ourselves, the better the relationship with other people. Like I'm so much happier in my relationship now than I was my ex-fiance or my ex-husband and nothing against those men. I, well, I do think Stephanos is totally my soulmate, I think why I drew him in is because he and I both did a crap ton of work on ourselves and really got to a place where we were really good partners to ourselves. And because of that, we can be really good partners to each other. I totally experienced that. When I met my husband, when I really compare that relationship to previous relationships, there was a clear difference. And there were a couple of reasons for this. First, I always share this, but My husband was the first man that I met that really seemed to work on himself as much as I did, which Mm. was actually a total game changer. That changed everything for me. Yep. But also, by the time I met him, I had a pretty core understanding of who I was. There was still a lot of self-discovery to be had, and there still is, I will add. But I did know what I was good at, what lit me up, what my great day looked like the hobbies that I knew I needed to have in my life to really feel fulfilled, like yoga and girl time. And in a lot of relationships before Shane, I had the tendency to kind of just squish my life together with whoever I was dating. So I would be hanging out with their friends all the time, or I would suddenly join their gym or just whatever I could do to spend more time with them or whatever. And part of this was because I was still seeking. And so I would be like, okay, well, now I'm exposed to this whole other life. Let me see what this was like. But a lot of times what would end up happening is, number one, when the relationship ended, I would feel completely lost and distraught. Or number two, I would reach a breaking point and I would just feel completely unfulfilled and just kind of abruptly end it. Sorry if there's any exes listening to this. Now you know the reason we broke up. <laughs> or, or the third side would be that I would be interested in something like learning about the love languages or the law of attraction. And the person I was with would think it was stupid or not share the same beliefs. And so I would either hide them or let them go while we were dating. So then when I met my husband, it felt completely different because it was so obvious that we were on the same path. Even our business interests were really aligned. And so not only was he not holding me back in any way, we weren't just following this upward trajectory. It actually shot up exponentially. And it was a huge catalyst for my entire life changing. 
So I'm always telling my friends to hold out for that. Hold out for when it feels different and it doesn't feel like such a fight. But I'm wondering, does that mean that you shouldn't even bother being in a relationship before you discover those core things about yourself? Yeah. What if you are already in a relationship and you're thinking to yourself, well, hell, I am married and I am just discovering these things yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah. You run. No, I'm <laughs> I um, would maybe. <laughs> so a lot, and this is a thing that I, again, we, I wish we learned in school. Like there's not just one soulmate, there's many. And just because a relationship doesn't last, it doesn't mean it's a success. Some people meet the love of their life, like right out of the gates and they spend their life with that person. And it's amazing. Most people, it takes a few relationships. Like my early relationships were what I call issue based relationships. Like our issues totally attracted us to each other. (laughs) And so we were perfect to heal and trigger each other in the way that would lead to growth. And I think that that's one of the points of a relationship is it accelerates growth. And so you can get to a point where you realize, all right, I have an expiration date with this relationship. I've learned as much as I can. We're just going in different directions. Like there's not a values and vision alignment in the relationship. And I think that's an important thing to be aware of. But for so many relationships, it just needs a little work. It needs two people willing to get off of their position and to do the work together. And if you're one person doing the work and your partner isn't, Well, one, listen to the podcast I did with Stephanos because we talk all about that. But the biggest thing that I would say right now, which we talk about in the podcast is be the example. Show how you are changing by how you respond, how you love, how you show up, how you stop criticizing the person. Like if they start to see that all the work that you're doing is actually shifting you and shifting the relationship and you're happier, you're more at peace, you don't react as much. If they start seeing that, they're going to go, you know what? That looks good. So I got married at 28 and I was into personal growth, but a lot of it hadn't integrated. I had all the information and awareness, but I was just starting to come off antidepressants. I, I hadn't really embodied the change, but I had the info. You know, I had already written a book by then. I was working on my second book. I was coaching people, but not all of it had dropped in. And so my ex-husband would see me, you know, go to, you know, my master's degree program, go to these workshops and I'd come home on such a high and I'd preach to him about how he needed to do this and what his issues were. And then four days later, I'd snap at him or I'd be in a bit of a depression or I'd be, basically I was a bad poster child for personal growth. I wasn't <laughs> showing up consistently. And I'm not saying we have to be perfect, but if I had spent less time talking about personal growth and all the things he needed to change and more time just focusing on myself and living it, and just loving him, then there may have been a different result. I'm super happy for the result that I have now. Hindsight's 2020 because I've met the person that I think I'm supposed to be with and we taught each other valuable lessons in that. But it's just an important thing to remember is you're not going to convince somebody if you're not consistent yourself. I like what you said about focusing less on all the ways that he needed to change. One thing I have realized is that There's a lot of times where I think that if somebody changes in the specific way that my problems are going to be solved. But first of all, a lot of the times it's that's not even the root of where that problem is coming from. It just might be one of the triggers. And then second of all, is there a way to fulfill that need in myself in a way that doesn't involve somebody else needing to change? And sometimes if you can find how to fill your own hole, that sounded dirty, but (laughs) (laughs) how to fill your own need before expecting somebody else to 
like yeah. your whole, I can't get it out yeah, of my exactly. mind. <laughs> no, it's, it's both the dirty expression and the metaphor <laughs> work because we're just looking for love, whether it's physical love through sex and connection and intimacy or someone to take care of us. We just want to be loved. And I'm not saying that you have to be in this place of massive, perfect self-love before you can meet someone. It's more about you're more likely to meet someone who also is good to themselves. The better I am at loving myself, the better I am at loving my fiance. And I'm sure that you see that in your marriage too, Melissa. It's like the better you are at loving you, the better you are at loving him. And that's just the way it works. And it's a lifelong process. So I think the most important thing is to find someone who loves you for how you are and is willing to grow with you. A lot of people ask me about monogamy because Stephanus and I have chosen that that's the path that we're on. I have a lot of friends that are in the open relationship community, and it's been a conversation, big conversation in my life for about five years now. And how we think about it is neither one of us are going to be the same person in a year, five years, 10 years, because we're so, so committed to growing. And I think that that's why so many relationships, you have expectation hangovers in so many relationships is because people are bored. And unless you're consistently choosing to get out of your comfort zone, unless you're consistently choosing growth experiences, you're going to get bored first with yourself and then with your partner. So you don't have to have multiple partners. I mean, if that's your jam, go for it. But if that's not your jam, you can have multiple partners in the same person if you're both committed to growth. I remember sitting or standing in my living room with my husband a few months after I started Mind Love. And like we talked about on your podcast, I was in a job that left me completely unfulfilled and it was seeping out into my relationships because my CEO was a little bit toxic for me. We There were moments where he triggered me in ways that other people definitely couldn't. And so that would seep out into my relationship, which was one of the biggest motivators for me to get out of it. And so a few months after I actually started living into the things that were fulfilling me and making bold choices to make myself happy instead of what was expected of me, or at least I thought was expected of me, I was standing there with my arms around him. And I remember saying, you know, I didn't know it was possible to love you more until I started loving myself more. And Mm. now I feel like I have even more love to give. I'm not needing you to fix so many things for me. I've fixed those for myself. And now the main thing in between us is just love and creation. And it was such an eye-opening moment for me. And our relationship has been different ever since, but it took me filling my own needs first. Absolutely. That's the way it works. I'm wondering about emotions though, because emotions come into play with every single thing that we do. But we're used to suppressing them in a lot of different ways, whether it's in our relationship, whether it's just in our relationship with ourselves. And so I'm wondering, how do we actually learn to get in touch with our emotions so we can allow them to guide us instead of just stuffing them in? Well, I have a whole section on that in Expectation Hangover because it's hard. It's harder for people that have suppressed a lot of their lives. But the easiest way that I have found to to start getting in touch with emotions is journaling. And that can look like just classic journaling, or it can look like what I like to call release writing, where you just pen to paper, stream of consciousness, write so messy you can't even read it later as a way to start to access your emotions. And it's important to handwrite it, not type, because it accesses the emotional center of the brain when we handwrite. But it's really just creating this space 
for ourselves to feel and not, not suppressing them. And most of us in today's day and age have a gazillion different forms of distraction, you know, our phone being the primary one. And it's easy to just stuff our feelings inside and just distract ourselves with being busy, with addictive things. Most of the time people don't feel is because their suppression strategies are so, 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 so strong that they don't have to. But what happens when we hold emotions in for years and years and years is we get things like depression, anxiety, disease. So many of the physical ailments that we get today, I mean, there's a lot just based on the toxins in our environment, but that's a whole other podcast. But compound that with emotional suppression and you're setting yourself up for something in your health to go wrong. And that's why I'm so passionate about emotional release work is because we can't control all the toxins we're exposed to. Even someone like me who's very conscious, just the fact that I love to travel, I'm exposing myself to toxins just by going on an airplane. So how I combat that is I want to make sure emotionally and unconsciously I'm as clean and as pure as I possibly can be. So I think sometimes realizing the importance of how important it is to feel is important, but it really requires slowing down. And that's why I think a lot of people avoid meditation is because they can't stop their mind. But why they can't stop their mind is because if they can't stop their mind, they've got to learn to feel. And often what we feel is uncomfortable. And it's so important, Melissa, when we're feeling any kind of feeling or experiencing any kind of emotion, not to judge it. When we judge emotion or we analyze emotion, that's how it gets recycled. And we recycle emotion, meaning we have like a feeling or we have a cry or something, but then it just kind of goes back in and we don't really feel any relief. And that's because we've been jud- we're judging ourselves. We think we're weak. We think that we shouldn't be crying. We are angry that it, we're upset. Like we're not in a space of compassion. So it's so important in emotional release work to be in a tremendous state of compassion. What I find interesting is that I actually went through a stage of, I think I was judging my emotions more when I first started getting really deep into self-development and kind of like you said, where you had this awareness, but not really the integration from your self-development, it was around that time. And so for me, when I was developing myself, I created an expectation, bringing that full circle that I was going to reach this place of none of this stuff ever bothering me anymore. But I didn't realize that personal development is more about developing tools so that you can do stuff at those certain times. And so for me, it's it's interesting too. even being the host of mind love in one moment, I might be this person where I'm viewing myself as this person who inspires people and guides them to their highest self. And then maybe 20 minutes later, I feel like a toddler who just can't Mm. get her shit together. And, and I beat myself up because I think I'm supposed to be this other person when really, if we can accept the fact that We're going to have a full range of emotions and that's good. It's our body's way of talking to us, but then not identifying with it too much and just realize it's something that's moving through you. It doesn't have to be you. Exactly. And it's each of the key thing moving through emotion is energy in motion, emotion. So if you can just move it through with so much compassion, you'll start to feel a lot more relief. You'll start to trust yourself more. And from my point of view, Holding compassionate, safe space for your emotional expression is a massive part of self-love. Well, thank you again so much for joining me in this hour. Shout out to my friend, Brett, who is a huge fan of yours. So (laughs) we were both very excited about this episode. Ah, my pleasure. For listeners who would like more of you, where should they connect with you online? So come over and listen to Over It and On With It. I interview amazing people like Melissa. And also every Wednesday, I air a 
live coaching session. So it's unscripted, unproduced, unedited. You get to hear me do a live intervention with someone. And we talk about everything. Like there's been episodes on everything from self-love to eating disorders to do I leave my job to how do I get over self-sabotaging behavior to I'm in my in a relationship with a narcissist to healing the father wound, the mother wound, spirituality. Like there's nothing we haven't talked about. So head on over there and then you can follow me on Instagram, Christine Hassler. And I also, can I give your audience a free gift, Melissa? Of course. Okay. So one thing we didn't talk too much about, but it's something super important is intuition, like really being able to get out of our head and trust our intuition. So as somebody who's been very heady, I needed to develop a practical way to get into my intuition. So I have a six step, very practical, really cool way to drop into your intuition. And then I also have an ebook for you. It's just 32 days to uplevel your mind and uplift your heart. It's just little things you can read daily. And if you just text my name, Christine, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E to the number 444-999. So just get out your phone, put in the text box, type the number 444-999, put my name, Christine, in the subject line, and you'll get that free gift. All right, pro tip. You want to know the best way to release expectations? Live in the freaking moment. It's really hard to have an expectation about the future based on a past experience when you're really trying to soak in all the goodness of the present moment. And I know that that can be a difficult habit to create because it really is a habit. It's something that I remind myself to do all the time. When I hear my brain being a little too loud or cycling through things or doing whatever this crazy human brain does, I try to come to my senses. I focus on what I smell and what I see and the gratitude for this present moment. A lot of that comes from what I feel in my body. Have you ever done that? Realized you are so grateful for exactly where you are right then or exactly who you're with or exactly what you feel like that all your senses feel heightened. You can build a habit around that and it's life-changing. And even if it's not something that happens naturally all the time, you have the power to bring yourself back to that point. What I like to do is create triggers around it. So I close my eyes and I really feel what I'm feeling in my body. I try to feel my heart beating or feel how good it feels to have my breath come in and out of my lungs or feel the delicate air dancing on the surface of my skin. It sounds so simple, but most of our depression or our anxiety, if not all, I'm going to say all of it, comes from this future fear or this past resentment. The power is always in the present moment. And the more we can train our brains to come back to that state, ultimately, the happier we're going to be. Okay, as a side note, I am doing all of my communications with listeners these days via Instagram. So come over and connect with me at MindLoveMelissa. I really love hearing from you guys. It's like the highlight of my day. And you just might get a future shout out on an episode. So feel free to leave a comment on one of my posts or reach out to me in a direct message or better yet, screenshot the episode and share it on social media. And don't forget to tag Mind Love Melissa and Mind Love Podcast. And while you're at it for this episode, Christine Hassler. And as always, leaving a review on iTunes is also super helpful. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.